Hi, Richard Moss here. I've been very quiet on the podcast side this year because I've had a lot of great things happening with my books and with FPS Doc and watching my baby daughter grow. But before we wrap up for 2022, I wanted to share the audio from a panel I was on at PAX Australia in October. We called it Shareware Down Under, and it was all about discussing the heyday of shareware gaming from a few different Australian perspectives. I won't introduce it further because there's already an excellent intro at the start of the panel, except to say that I've linked to my slides in the show notes so you can follow along if you want. Let's get right into it. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Shareware Down Under. I hope you've all been having a good PAX, good weekend so far. It's great to see so many awesome shareware fans here in the audience. Uh, look, my name's Ari Offman. I'm a video games curator and a public programmer at Acme down at Fed Square. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that today's talk has taken place on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. And we'd like to acknowledge on a weekend when we come in together to celebrate artistry and storytelling, that we have a history of artistry and storytelling with our First Nations people here in this land that stretches back thousands of years. So again, welcome to Shareware Down Under. And today, we're going to take a trip down memory lane, where demo discs, where floppies grace the front of every computer and video games magazine. And one of the best ways to distribute games came in the form of shareware. Can I please get you to put your hands together for our panel, Richard, John, and Terry. Richard Moss he is an award-winning writer, historian, and journalist with bylines in over 30 games and technology publications, including Ars Technica, Edge, Game Developer, PC Gamer, and Polygon. He is also a producer and co-writer on the upcoming documentary, FPS First Person Shooter. Richard's first book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, was called A Fascinating Read by Retro Gamer Magazine. His new book, Shareware Heroes, The Renegades Who Redefined Gaming at the Dawn of the Internet, chronicles indie game development in the 1980s and 90s and how the likes of Apogee, Id and Epic pioneered making money by giving away games for free. And if you haven't had a chance to grab a copy of the Shareware book yet, you'll be able to catch up with Richard after this panel. He's got lots of copies here on him. Some. 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 <laughs> Enough. Uh, John Passfield has been making commercial games since 1985 and has worked on titles including Halloween Harry, Flight of the Amazon Queen, Tie the Tasmanian Tiger, Destroy All Humans 2, as well as numerous mobile and watch games. John co-founded uh, a few game studios, including Interactive Binary Illusions in 1993, G Wiz Entertainment in 1996, and Chrome Studios in 1999. John's works are included in the Acme Play It Again 2 Games Collection and the National Film and Sound Archive of Australia Hive Interactive Space. John currently helps make cool stuff at Mighty Games, and is working on a sequel to Flight of the Amazon Queen for release sometime in the 21st century. <laughs> and last but definitely not least, Terry Burdock is a graphic designer, game developer, and the creative director of Paperhouse. He's worked in the game industry for seven years since graduating from RMIT. During this time, he released the award-winning Paperbark, worked as QA and production assistant at League of Geeks, uh, community and studio manager at Two Point, business development manager for the GDAA and event manager for GCAP. He's an active member and advocate of the local games industry and has been involved in numerous events, conferences and community events, including Changes, Digra, Vape, Girl Geek Academy and MIGW Squiggle. Currently, he's organising free play parallels for 2022, which went amazingly the other night, uh, running an indie game shop and working on Wooden Weather, a silly game about climate change. So once again, can you please put our hands together for the amazing panels today. So before we kick off, just wanted to let you know a little bit about how the panel's going to work today. Each of our guests has got a bit of a presentation to take you down memory lane and have a bit of a look at their unique take on shareware. Got a few questions that we are going to have a discussion on, and then there's a chance for you to ask all the questions of your own. So take it away, Richard. Alrighty. Maybe aim towards the back. There, there we, we go. go. All right. So my job here uh, is to give you a really quick rundown of, uh, of the shareware era and uh, where, where shareware came from and stuff. Uh, <coughs> So just to let you know, I had a cold a few weeks ago. I will cough occasionally. It's uh, 
it's annoying, but uh, nothing I can do about it. So, uh, oh, and you should probably go to my that website, shareoheroes.com one day. Uh, it's, it's very fun. I created it myself, uh, styled it after an old DOS program. So if you were using computers back in the 80s or the 90s, you'll get a kick out of it. Now, so um, in order to, to, to tell you where shareware came from, we've got to, you, you need to understand that software used to be free. So back in the 1960s and the 70s, if you wanted to use a computer, you had a, a mainframe or a mini computer, and it costs tens of thousands of dollars at minimum, and it may well have cost millions of dollars. And you'd find it in a university or a bank or some other big corporation. And then um, if, you, if you wanted software on there, it will have been made by uh, some random person who's sort of a bit, a bit of a hacker. They fancy themselves uh, being talented with, with computer code. And they all had this similar ideal that uh, the world could be made better by computers. Computers and, and great software would, would actually advance the human race. And in order to uh, facilitate that, ideas needed to flow openly. They need, you needed to have no restraint whatsoever. So programs needed to be just freely exchanged by people. And then uh, you had Bill Gates come along and uh, he convinced people that, well, actually, programmers need to make money. And so he came up with, he started Microsoft, this company, and they created Microsoft Basic. They started charging money. And personal computers, uh, which were more affordable, they were maybe a few thousand dollars instead of tens of thousands of dollars. They had software that you had to buy. But then there's this guy called Andrew Flugelman. He wrote books for a living and, and published books for a living. And he had this idea that uh, he wanted to write a book about how computers work. He'd never actually had a computer. So he went out and he bought an IBM PC. And as he's learning to use it, he is uh, writing his book. And as part of learning how to use the computer, he's learning to program. And he's writing his own programs that will help him improve how he does his book. And then at some point he decides, well, I want to give some other people this program. I want to share it around, but I don't want to charge money because he still believes in this old hacker ideal of, of software being shared freely. So he comes up with an idea, well, I'll give it away, but I'll ask people pay if you like it. Give me, give me money if you think this program is worth money. He called it an experiment in economics and not in altruism. And, uh, it actually went really, really well. Uh, a whole lot of people who got the program then went and sent him money. This is 1982, I remember it. Um, and at the same time, there's this other guy called uh, Jim Knopf who came up with basically the same thing. He called it user-supported software. And uh, there was another guy just after them called Bob Wallace who called it shareware. And the, there's this whole... Uh, history of how the, the name came about that I don't really have time to go into here. Uh, but shareware became the name and the idea was just you give away software and if you like it, you pay for it. And then, of course, as with any software, people started making games. Uh, the, I'd say the first big flurry of shareware games came around 1985 or so. Uh, yep, I've got a few screenshots of some there. Captain Magneto was a, a big deal in the, the Macintosh world. Um, Three Demon was like a, a first-person maze of Pac-Man. Uh, it's quite freaky when the ghosts eat you because they engulf the screen and just completely, completely consume you. Uh, really, the worm is like a Donkey Kong clone. Sam Spade game is a, it's a mystery thing of whodunit. And Flightmare is a very strange game where you have... Uh, a top-down and a side view, and you have to line them both up in order to actually do anything. The problem was that the games didn't make any money. Nobody was paying the creators. Now, so things like what Andrew Flugerman and Jim Knopps and Bob Wallace were creating, these, these programs earned a lot of money because they made people more productive. They helped them in their business. And these developers, they could say to... Uh, their, their audience, well, if 
you pay me money, then I'll give you free updates to my software and I'll give you a printed manual and I'll give you phone support. None of that's any good if you're making a game, particularly the simple kinds of games people are sharing around. And so this idea started to spread that nobody pays for shareware. Shareware just doesn't work. And it didn't even matter if it was a really good shareware game. Like I've got a few up there that uh, were superb for the time. Glider is one of my favorite games ever. It's a paper plane game. Uh, Scarab of Ra is like a, an early roguelike game. And Captain Comic, it, which was extremely popular, uh, it was the, the first uh, DOS uh, platform game that actually got uh, good, smooth animation. Uh, it barely made any money at all, even though there were probably uh, hundreds of thousands of people who were playing that game around the world. Then there was this guy called Scott Miller, and he had an idea. You know, there was literally, you know, thousands of these shiver programs out there, and a lot of people were making money in this market. Um, but when I when I started to look into it, the common wisdom was that games weren't making any money in shareware. So Scott had, Scott had the dream to, to get into game development professionally, but the kinds of games that he was making, no publishers wanted. So he sold them to disc magazines, which were literally their magazines that would be shipped on a disc to people when they had programs on it that you could play with. He didn't make much money doing that either. So he, he tried out this shareware thing and he put his games out as shareware, his existing games, and they didn't make much money that way either. And so he's trying to think, well, how can I do this? And he's talking to a lot of different people who are in the shareware business, and he gets an idea. And uh, that's when I get the idea of, well, let's not release the whole game like everyone else is doing. Let's just release it as sort of a teaser. I'll break it up into episodes, release the first episode, and then you have to buy the other two episodes. And so that was sort of the, 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 the innovation that I brought to the shareware puzzle you know, just release a portion of it and let people buy the rest. And that was the piece of the puzzle that was missing apparently because it really took off. You know, almost right away, people were sending in checks. And so uh, it became known as the Apogee model because his company was called Apogee. And of course it's his model of how shareware works. And this worked really, really well. And suddenly, there was something that worked. You, you could make a lot of money if you gave just a part of your game away, if you broke it into episodes. And Tim Sweeney, who is a very rich man now, uh, he, he looked at Apogee and he looked at Scott Miller and he sort of idolized him and this idea that you could put, you put out your games in an episodic way. And so he, he created this little business, he called it Potomac, uh, consulting systems, I think something like that. So it was just a business that he'd already created for a consulting thing that didn't work. And he sold this, this game of his called ZZT, uh, which was effectively a game that you use to make other games, which may sound familiar to people who follow what Epic do now. And it, it was doing really well. And so he started to scale up his business, modeled it after Apogee. And he came up with the name Epic Mega Games because he wanted a name that sounded like a, an important company. <laughs> and meanwhile, uh, Scott Miller is shopping around. He's trying to find developers to, to put out their stuff using his new Apogee model because he recognizes that he's not a very good programmer. His skill is marketing. So he's, he's going around and he's, he's contacting people who he thinks are making games that could work with the Apogee model. And he comes across John Romero's work. And John's working at a company called Softdisk. They do disc magazines and uh, he's making cool stuff. So Scott wants to get in touch with him and he starts sending John letters, but uh, he's concerned that Softdisk might intercept these letters. So he does them under an alias. And instead of saying, please make a game for me, he says, I love your games, but I found a bug in it. And uh, please contact me. And then he'd come up with a fake name that if you know who he is, you can recognize that it's him. It's like Scott Moliere, 
<laughs> instead of Scott Miller. And after John had got a few of these letters, he happened to be reading a profile in a magazine of Apogee. And he saw the address at the end and he went, wait, wait a minute. I've seen this address. And he looks up on his wall and he's actually taped the letters to his wall in, in his cubicle. And he gets really mad. What is this guy doing? Why is he trying to trick me? And he types up an angry letter and then he's, he cools down. The next day he comes back, he writes another letter, gets in touch with Scott, they talk, and Scott pitches him on working with Apogee. And uh, as it happens, uh, Romero's friend, John Carmack and Tom Hall, they had just made a demo of Super Mario Brothers that worked on the PC. And this was groundbreaking because you couldn't do fast animation on a computer, on an IBM PC computer back in those days. And so he says to, to Scott, we, we can do something like that for you. We can do an original game like that. Scott says, great, let's do it. Gives them, gives them some money to prove that he's serious. And they created Commander Keen, which is the game up the top there for anyone who doesn't know. It's a very cool platforming, platforming game. It's the first Mario style platformer on DOS. And it was a huge revelation. It made a lot of money and uh, it kind of started to get shareware attention on a broader scale. And then Apogee followed that up with a game called Duke Nukem, which they made in-house. And uh, some other people were doing some cool stuff around the same time. Uh, Scott Miller tried to, to get uh, David Gray, who made Hugo's House of Horrors, to work with him. But when they had a chat, it was clear David knew what he was doing. Um, and so then, it went and made Wolfenstein 3D. And uh, it was an even bigger revelation. It, it, it started to actually break into the mainstream. And people who worked in the games industry, they played Wolfenstein 3D and they got excited because it's a first person shooter and this is new technology. Then there are some other cool games happening around the same time. Uh, on the Amiga and Atari ST, there was Llamatron, which is a weird Robotron clone where you've got uh, a bunch of really strange enemies that you've got to kill, uh, including a giant toilet. <laughs> there was an Asteroids clone on the Mac called Maelstrom, which won a Shareware uh, Industry Award. There's Scorched Earth, which I'm sure a lot of people have played. <laughs> <laughs> a fantastic artillery game. Epic Pinball was Epic's first really, really big hit. And then, of course, in 1993, there was Doom. And Doom just changed everything. Because Doom, I mean, Doom was incredible. It was, a, it was a brilliant game, but it also, it was everywhere. And the guys at id had this great idea to uh, get Doom into retail stores by going to these uh, companies that put out rackware. So they'd put uh, CD-ROMs or discs into a retail store and uh, sell, share, sell unregistered shareware. So just the part that you can download for free if you happen to be able to get on the internet. It said to them, do what you want with this, share that, publish it. We don't want any of your money. We don't care. We're not going to sue you. Just do it. And so they're like, fantastic. Thank you. And everyone started buying Doom. And Doom is an advert, advert for itself. And so Doom was a massive success. And then it did so well that it started to grow more and, and they started to look beyond shareware and into uh, retail distribution world and Epic were doing great and Apogee were doing great, uh, Duke Nukem 3D. And so these guys, they're moving beyond shareware, they're moving into retail. And uh, so then when they did that, the smaller companies, uh, they, they were what was left in the shareware world, but there were still some cool games. So, listed some of them there. And uh, in any case, by the end of the 90s, shareware wasn't really needed anymore because everything was shareware. The idea of a demo had become commonplace. It was standard, the idea that you give away part of your game to show off your game. This was just done without thinking by, by all companies. Uh, and the, the big commercial companies, instead of... Uh, Instead of putting, away the, putting out these big, like, seven-level episodes, they put out one level. 
but it was enough and it, it worked pretty well for them. And then in the early 2000s, we stopped saying shareware. We started using the word indie, which was a much better term to describe these games that are made by independent creators. And so that's basically the really quick history of, of shareware from, from its beginnings to, to when it, uh, it didn't disappear, but it faded out of common use uh, as, a, as a term, even though as a business model, it never completely went away, as we'll talk about a bit later. So on to John. Very cool. Can we, So, um, yeah, so I'm just going to talk about, I guess, Halloween Harry, because we were there at the big, just pure, pure luck there at the beginning when um, when Apogee had their model and uh, that came about. And I'm going to try and remember what my slides are. So I'm probably going to talk and then realize what the slide is. So how do we get forward? <laughs> All right. uh, this one here. That one? Yeah, and just point it towards okay. there. There we go. And I've got some videos as well, so they might be. Um... But yeah, so uh, well, so for pre-shareware, so the first thing I, I was, um, so I grew up in a country town in uh, New South Wales. And um, we had a microbee computer, which is the, like, uh, yeah, some fans here. <laughs> awesome um, Australian computer. Uh, and I, I was, uh, I just loved playing games and, and, and um, we had local arcade. And I remember playing um, a game called Pengo, which was a really cool little game. You push blocks around in a maze. And I wanted to play more of that at home. So I thought, well, when I get home, I, I decided to make one on the microbee computer. And so I wrote that up. And then for some reason, I don't know why, I just looked at the back of the microbee manual and there was a place called Honeysoft in Gosford. So I, I thought, well, I'll just send it off to them and see what they think. And then they wrote a letter back going, you know, weeks later or whatever, saying, oh, this is great. Can we, we'll publish it. And I wrote back and said, that sounds great. And no sort of idea about what it meant or contracts. And then, um, so and then I got two cassette tapes. One of them, uh, which is the inlay there is Chili Willy um, came through from them. And they, uh, yeah, they, they, they published it on cassette tape in little boutique, um, Stores, one of them in Lismore called CompuK. No one's from anyone, Northern Rivers. Yeah, oh, there we go. It was a toy, oh, Tweet Heads, very good. Well, CompuK was a little shop that had, yeah, sold microbees and stuff. Very good. So uh, it, it got sold there. So that was my sort of foray into, into video games. And I also made one called Halloween Harry, which was um, for the microbee. I did that one the following year in, in high school. Um, I thought I'll make another one. And I was inspired a lot by um, uh, ZX Spectrum. Um, magazines. So I never had a ZX Spectrum, but I'd get the all the magazines from um, the UK, which have these screenshots of these amazing games and things like Jet Set Willy. And and so I, I imagine what they played like. So I thought I'll make one of those. And um, Ghostbusters had come out, and I, I, I I'm not sure if I'd seen Ghostbusters at this stage because being in country town, we got things months after Sydney. Um, but I thought I'll make a game about a ghost hunter, and that's where Halloween Harry Harry began. So again, I sent that off to. Um, Honeysoft, and they published that one as well. That one came out on their, uh, like their disc collection. Um, and that was sold for like $12.95. Um, and then years later, I think, yeah, so then years later, what happened was um, I was working at Telecom. Um, it was called back then doing, you know, like enterprise type software, which is awfully boring. And I was sick of it and um, a huge fan of comic books. And through the comic book connection with a friend of ours around a comic book store, I met Steve Stamatiatis. And um, I mentioned him that I, he had an Amiga computer and um, mentioned that, um, you know, I had a game called Halloween Harry and he said, we should make another game. So we thought, let's make a game, got an Amiga. We started building Halloween Harry uh, redone. Now, the interesting thing here is we weren't really, the shareware model for us wasn't really that obvious at that stage. We were sort of inspired by the Amiga computers and what, what games were on there. So um, we started building Halloween Harry um, and then we signed with a company in Brisbane called Metacom. And at that stage, I'm, my memory is foggy because we did design it with the four levels in mind. So we must have had either input from Menacom or somebody, uh, maybe um, Tony and Rob, who two other people that worked with us on that game. So we decided to make that as a, uh, you know, we had like um, a sewer level, a factory level, a alien space level, and what was the other one? I think it might have been, whatever. There's another, there was four levels. And basically, um, that worked out really well because we ended up giving one of those levels away um, when we got the game released for Apogee. But the Apogee connection came through Manicom. So Manicom um, were distributing all of Apogee games in Australia or through Brisbane. And um, they showed off to um, Apogee and they liked it and they said, we'll publish it. So I was really lucky that we had that, um, that connection. Um, and the actual game itself was, um, so we, we were building it in, on the Amiga uh, using Amos, which is a programming language. 
Um, and we met um, two people, Tony and Rob, um, Tony Ball and Rob Crane, and they were working with um, a guy called Lindsay Whip in Brisbane who was making a, um, a game called Baron Baldrick, another shareware title. Uh, and they were programming that. And we met them and they said, we like what you're doing, so can we program that? So they converted that over from Amos and um, so Steve was doing the graphics, I was doing the game design and level layout and they did the programming. Uh, yeah, and then through, through Apogee, it was published and uh, that was the, the Australian box art. So yeah, so through, sorry, that's, the, that's, the, that's the Apogee box art. Yeah, so with the Apogee um, branding on it. And um, yeah, distributed then through uh, Manicom. Oh, and there's the levels. There you go, you can see there's uh, a sewer, a factory. Oh, there's, there is a fourth one, anyway. <laughs> Whatever it's called. So that was um, that was Halloween Harry. So yeah, with four games. Oh, the office block. There we go. They're, they're really generically named. You can tell we had a lot of creativity. Um, <laughs> so that was so we were very happy with that because it was um, we had parallax scrolling and some cool cool effects which are really amazing. Um, and I think I might have here. Oh. Okay, here we go. There we go. Oh yeah. They, they, so what happened was we actually got it renamed. Um, we had feedback from Scott Miller. He wasn't very impressed with the name Halloween Harry. Worried about it being seasonal because it would be just a Halloween game. Um, and I'm, I'm still friends with. Uh, and I talked to um, George Besside, who was also from Apogee at the time. And I actually emailed, uh, texted him, and said, "What do you remember? What happened at that time? Like why? What your thoughts were about the game and the name?" And he said, "Look, he says I remember having a lot of resistance. Um, well, first of all, he said he, he said he did the." Um, the only real resistance was the name, the, the change in the name. Um, but he thought the game was great. Um, but he did think that the platform was getting, platform was getting a little stale at the time. Um, he actually liked the name Halloween Harry, which I thought was interesting. But he he thought that the change to Alien Carnage wasn't that good, so he didn't approve of that. And his he his recommendation was um, I'm going to my glasses next. I'm going to read it. His recommendation was he thought it should have been called Hardcore Harry or some other. <laughs> oh my god! Which um. <laughs> Which I think is pretty cool. I'm not sure whether he's remembering Hardcore Henry and maybe he's he got it mixed up, but I think it's a great name. Hardcore Harry would have been pretty cool. But anyway, but, we, but Halloween Harry is what it was and uh, released this Alien Carnage. Uh, and um, I think I've got some more screenshots of that. So we were also part of that model of... Um, I don't turn it off. Oh, shit. Sorry. 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 Um, oh, yeah, that's the renaming. Yep, to Alien Carnage. And... Uh, it kind of looks kind of cool. Oh, there's the box and the manual, which is uh, pretty cool. So it was great having a physical copy of that as well. Um, and a lot of the people there in the credits there, like just if you're interested, we got like yeah, we see Steve, uh, Rob Crane, uh, George Stamatiadis. He ended up doing a lot of the music for um, Tyler Tasmanian Tiger. Uh, and Stephen Baker is the brother of Darren Baker. Um, who did the graphics? They went on and did um, Balls of Steel, another great shareware game. So actually, in Brisbane, there were there were two other teams that we knew of doing games. There was a team who did Star Gunner, and then had a guy called James Podesta who ended up being um, working on Tyler Tasman Tiger. So we all sort of eventually mushed together uh, a few years later and, and working on different um, console games. Um, but it was uh, but we also worked initially in just little silos by ourselves. Um, okay, and then uh, oh, then we were also on a bunch of shareware bundles. So this is the stuff that. Um, uh, you were talking about with the uh, just give it away for free and we were packed in with so many games um, and you just see these everywhere we were, I'd, I'd, whenever we went to like a, a news agency or something it'd be like a little rack pack and I'd, I'd grab them and keep them um, with another one play six games from CD um, and then we also I'm not sure what, there was, we started seeing a lot of them that were then the full version, which wasn't in the spirit of shareware. Um, you weren't supposed to give away the whole game, but yeah, people suddenly thought they well, we'll just put the whole game on here and sell that. So there was a sales that we never got any money from. So <laughs> it wasn't wasn't nice. And then what was interesting was, um, and a disclaimer here, we we got Manicom were really good that they managed to get some local press coverage. Now the press didn't know much about computer games, so there's going to be things they're going to say in these uh, clips that 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 you know they might say that you know we were, we were the first people to make video games or some nonsense but um, <laughs> we'll see and we're assuming i press the button to play yeah, yeah let's press the next one there we go so this is um if you're at the expo keep an eye out for a brand new game on display there the result of two years hard work by a group of young brisbane programmers amanda patterson reports it promises to be an international money maker <laughs> Three days 
years ago, an alien ship entered Earth's orbit. Your mission is to race through zombie-infested office blocks using micro-nukes, thermal grenades, and the mighty photon cannon to save terrified hostages from the clutches of the evil alien mothership. Good luck. This is Halloween Harry, the new game developed entirely by five young Brisbane computer wizards. Just kind of an idea for characters. You throw a few pixels around on the screen and say, okay, that's his eyes, they look fine. And we'll give him like a broken nose and a, one of those baseball helmets. Steve Stamatiatis and his friend created Halloween Harry for an Amiga computer system and had no plans to take it past that initial stage. Then 21-year-old Robert Crane and his partner saw the rough version and knew they could transform it into a complete IBM package. We liked the game, we saw it, we thought it had potential because it was a fast, action-packed game. And believe it or not, to tackle the sound effects, they enlisted the talent of a 17-year-old classical pianist. It was that music that took them through the front door of computer software publisher Manicom. Managing director Ian Mackay sees the work of many young programmers, but believes Halloween Harry was a success before it even began. Because even in those early days back in uh, November, the, the genesis of a great game was already there. The game has already been snapped up by a major distributor in the United States, and it's hoped to be in American homes in time for Halloween on October 31st. For children around the world, Halloween Harry means hours of fun. But for the five young Brisbane inventors, their new game spells big bucks. Well, the best-selling game currently is the, the guys who wrote to drive Ferraris. Hopefully our local lads will be driving Ferraris soon. Well, 20 minutes... <laughs> They didn't drive Ferraris, no. <laughs> so that was that was cool. Actually, we have another one here. This is um, I don't know if you want to. This is um, another one. This is uh, I think after we launched. So, and the game that we're referring to, of course, was I think Wolfenstein. That was the um, the it guys, John Carmack and John Romero had Ferraris, so they did really well. Uh, so this is another TV spot. So bear with me on this one. Hero in the first Australian computer game to be sold internationally. Chris and Devitt reports on the brilliant minds behind our latest local export. In the film War Games, young computer hackers broke into the mother of all computers, NASA. These young programmers are staying within the law. They're about to break into the world computer game market. Halloween Harry for IBM compatible PCs is in Australian stores and now heading overseas. Well, I've achieved the first for Australia. They've managed to put together a program that's been accepted. It's early days, but accepted in the States, which is the world's largest market. Even more remarkable, considering the team of programmers are as young as 17. The producer, only 21. Aliens have come down from another planet <laughs> and they've invaded Earth and they're starting to turn uh, normal people into, into zombies. And the idea is you've got to go around and blow them away and rescue the innocent captives that are scattered throughout the levels. Accomplished composer, Brisbane State High School student Stephen Baker wrote the soundtrack. The sort of music that everyone wants to hear on a computer game is like fast rock with lots of drums, guitars. A new experience for this classically trained musician and for Manicom, the Australian distributor for American giant Apogee. Their support over seven months paying off as our superhero of exports hits computer screens across the planet. He could earn a fortune for this talented team. Kristen Devitt, 10 Eyewitness News. Good on them, and to another success. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that, that so that was um yeah, quite interesting. Um, I had the good sense in those days not to be on camera. Thank God, quite embarrassing. Going to ask where, where are you? No, I was lurking in the background. I was like, no way. I think that we another one, which is a review. But I was interesting with the um with I don't know if it's worth telling, but with Halloween Harry and Amazon Queen, the two games we were doing both at the same time. Um, and what was interesting was that both of them. I've told this story before, but we were going to be uh, published by Electronic Arts. They they were signed up to uh, distribute the games. Well, no, that's that's a lie. They weren't signed up. They it was again that naivety of us as as kids, as young people. We thought um, when we spoke with EA and they said we'd like this game. Um, here's a computer, you know, work with that and do stuff. We thought we, we were we <laughs> were kind of going to be published by them. And what happened was um, we went down to Electronic Arts in the Gold Coast to meet with their um, US boss coming out who's going to tell us, you know, we thought we we're going to get an actual agreement. 
And that day, this is what led to us to uh, eventually knock on Menacom's doors and also um, uh, the company in the UK, Renegade, who published Amazon Queen. The guy walked into the door and looked at us and uh, I went to shake his hand. He said, oh, don't, don't tell me your name, I won't remember it. I was like, well, that's not a good start. And then he just sat there and looked at our Halloween Harry, which was running on the Amiga at that stage. And he said, um, yeah, that's, that's, no, it was running on the PC. He said, that shouldn't be on the PC, it should be on the Amiga. Platform games don't sell on PCs. And he looked at Amazon Queen on the Amiga and said, that that's, should be on the PC, not an Amiga. And, you know, you guys have got to be like 100 times better than LucasArts and it won't work and it's terrible. And then he just walked out the room and we were like, what the <laughs> F? Had no idea what was going on. And, um, yeah, and the, uh, the Australian guys looked at us and went, oh, I guess that's it then. That's the end of the deal. And I was so disappointed. We packed up and that's when we got, got home and I was like, I'm not going to quit. So we just went through every magazine, sent all our discs off to um, everyone in the UK, all the different, you know, publishers like Ocean at the time and Renegade and, um, everyone and uh, and then obviously with Medicom we we talked to those guys and got the deal with them with Halloween Harry. So yeah, so don't give up on your dreams. I guess that's the answer. <laughs> but um, okay, the next one is the last one here is a review, and I haven't watched this forever, so I I, I don't know how harsh it's going to be. So here, here we go. <laughs> Halloween Harry is the latest hot arcade game for the PC. It's got all the ingredients for loads of action. Massive weapons, danger everywhere, aliens who have taken hostages, you name it, you've got it. A true Australian product with a wild soundtrack by a Brisbane kid. The game was written by our very own youngsters. This really is a smart country. Saving the world has never been so much fun. Scores close to a nine. And look out for the... Oh, that's it. Oh, there we go. That's pretty good. A nine. <laughs> Eight plus. Love it. Eight plus. Almost. <laughs> and that's it. Yes, yeah, so there you go. So that's, that was the, uh, the story of Halloween Harry. Okay. I get the feeling you uh, had it gone ahead with the title Hardcore Harry, it might have attracted quite a different audience. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Let's see if I can do this thing. Uh, G'day, I'm Terry. Um, my stories aren't as epic as those, but um, nothing's changed. You could. That story, you could just talk about House House and Dan Golding. It's like the exact same narrative. It's like, it's crazy. Sorry, I'm just being blown away by that. And Webb. And Webb's, yeah. Um, awesome. I don't remember what I'm talking about now. I was just completely enthralled by that whole thing. Um, but I'm Terry Burdak and um, I'm, I've got a studio Paper House. And I, I basically uh, absolutely love shareware. Um, that's kind of why I'm here, really. I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit into it. The, um, these aren't mine, so I can't take credit for it. But I stole it off the internet, which is kind of in the same kind of <laughs> vibe. Well, not I didn't steal them off the internet. That would have been impossible. I stole the image of those off the internet. Um, but anyway, so I, I didn't really realize this up until quite recently um, that shareware games have just completely it's like defined my taste in in games and as a game developer i hadn't even realized it i grew up playing lots of nintendo and i kind of thought that big chunk of like a lot of sega and nintendo and that big chunk of like when games were like you know was like what made it but ever since kind of being a bit more reflective i realized that shareware has absolutely absolutely defined um I don't want to say who I am as a person. That's a bit intense, but like my taste, you know, anyway. So, and a big reason for that was because uh, my family was super broke and I was super broke. And um, this isn't my computer either. I stole this in off the internet as well. <laughs> Again, the image of the computer, not the computer. Um, and uh, so that's like an old 386, I think. I, I can't tell. I typed 386 into Google Images and stuff. I should be crediting this, but, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, anyway, so a big thing for me is I used to go to like my – so I'm originally from Albury, Albury, Wodonga, just on the border of New South and Victoria. And um, they used to have like these kind of kind of swap meets, the kind of markets, you know. Really, I went there recently. It's so bad. 
they're really bad. They're not like the cool farmers markets where you get all the makers and stuff. They're like, there's this like dude selling screwdrivers and stuff. Like they're really bad. Well, they're, you know, they serve a purpose. Anyway, this, so this is during the nineties and there was just like a bunch of, a bunch of guys that basically were the only people that really had computers at the time. And they would have these little racks and they were just selling all these floppy disks and they're printing out their own labels and they're making their own labels up, which I'd love to get some of those because they would have been atrocious. And there was just like this huge array of games and you usually get them for like a dollar. And so I'd go down with my pocket money and I'd, I'd be getting all of these different games. I didn't actually have a computer at the time, but my cousin did. So a big part of what would happen was I'd go down to the markets, I'd buy a bunch of different games. And then the following week, I'd go to my cousin's house and we would, we would just smash out a bunch of these games. One of them was Worms. Um, that was one of the first kind of ones, like the original Worms. And the reason we played a lot of it was because it was actually multiplayer. Um, you know, otherwise you're doing kind of hot seat and that kind of thing. Um, and and it just, honestly, some of my, my most um, favorite gaming experiences have been like sitting like around this one computer and just like going through all these different shareware disks and just seeing what's up and that kind of thing. Um, and one of them that's actually really exciting for me personally was Halloween Harry. I, um, I played the crap out of that game. Me and my cousin just played it nonstop. So I didn't know that was a local game and I'd only found all this out once I realized I were on the panel. And so like I, I texted my cousin and I was like, you have no idea what I'm going to be doing next week. And he was just like, like it was in, and I was just like trying to explain it all, but like Halloween Harry, and, but then what's also really funny about this is like, we were like, why is it called Halloween Harry? Like, it's not Halloween. Like we didn't make, like we didn't really get it and stuff. So to hear like how the name kind of came about and everything is, is really quite, quite amazing <laughs> to be hearing it firsthand and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, but honestly, if you haven't had a chance to play Halloween Harry, you need to play it. It's, it's on Steam, right? It, it lessons in what not to do in game design, though. No? which is good. It doesn't matter. It's incredible. It's a really, really amazing game. Um, and so there was just like a bunch of different games. And um, I think Hugo's House of Horrors as well was another one. And, and they, you know, I remember when me and my sister found out that like there was like Hugo's 2, then we like, you know, went down to like the, the market and like trying to find Hugo 2. And, and I think they made Hugo 4, which was a first person shooter. And it was really so bad. bad. It was so bad. And we're like, what? Anyway, play that as well. But anyway, the point is, is like um, th these games like really, really def defined like so much of my early life. And a, and a part of it was like just the, um, the ability to kind of get these discs, like going down and like flipping through these random discs, kind of going through records or like an op shop or something now. And, um, and then also just being able to like share those experiences with your peers as well, you know, which is something which we, all really relate to now um and so that's something which i've been really 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 like that whole experience and that sharing um is something which i i think is incredibly valuable to games as a medium and something that we should all be really proud of it's, it's something like it's not the same as watching a movie with a mate it's like there's just something really kind of fun about it that's just i don't know it's really tactile it's really awkward and you know you kind of like sitting together and i don't know it's i really really like it a lot um, and so something which we've been working on in, uh, in my studio is, is kind of like thinking about that, that whole experience. And so we wanted to try and capture that ourselves, um, just recently. I don't think that worked this way. So we've, we've been working on like a bunch of little kind of merch and things like that. Obviously the, the PlayStation gun is, is from an entirely kind of different era, but that's beside the point. We, we, we're kind of having a look at back at these kind of nostalgia feeling and, and how to, how do we kind of capture that feeling and that kind of thing. Um, and then, so just recently, um, this is a little, this is, a, I guess a bit of a plug, but it's also like relevant to this whole thing. Um, is we, we just recently released like our own kind of version of shareware, um, where we've got a bunch of local games. So these are all local game makers. Um, and all the games are on itch and all that other kind of thing. And um, so what we've done is we've created our own custom labels, just like those dodgy guys down on the market. And um, when, we're now essentially, you know, letting other people come and pick them up. They're mostly collectibles because um, a lot of these discs don't actually work anymore. 
And so we'd, a big part of it was just to kind of save them from going to, into landfill and that kind of thing. But we also wanted to give people that, that same experience, you know, that a lot, a lot of people had and which, you know, is also like a really big part of, um, I think just like Australian games history as well. I think there's just, um, yeah, it just has a, such a strong thread throughout that whole history, which is really nice. And so, um, yeah, so that's kind of what, what we've been doing at the moment. Um, and that's been really, really wonderfully received. And yeah, it's been really amazing just seeing people uh, like younger people who didn't really grow up with discs and, and that kind of thing. Um, just kind of know what's up instantly. Like you, you can kind of just see from the start, like what it's about. It's about, you know, you, it's got the game on the front. It's like this weird little tactile thing. And, you know, it, it's, it just translates so wonderfully. Um, and yeah, anyway, so that's basically mine. My whole little thing. So yeah, I didn't do it for that final slide. I forgot to do it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, it's cool. Are you going to do like older games? Would you put like a Harry one? I we did talk about it. Like oh. I, but I thought we'd get sued or something. Oh. <laughs> sued? Oh. Then yeah, then we we will. Yeah. And they are awesome tactile collectible little objects. Terry, I've got mine. Uh, if these lovely people would like to get them, where can they uh, where can they grab these from? From my shop called Pay <laughs> it's called Paper House. It's on the internet, but we're also in Thornbury, like it's a physical shop you oh. can come into and stuff. Cool. Awesome. So Paper House online or in Thornbury. Um Look, there's going to be a bit of a chance for you guys to ask some questions and wax nostalgic about your favourite thing, shareware. But um, you know what? I've got a few of my own. Just uh, so. Before we go back again, I want to kind of think about the current situation. And look, shareware was so important at a particular time uh, and uh, as a particular distribution method methodology, particularly for what we would call indie developers. So do you guys see uh, anything kind of analogous to, to that happening in the modern era? Yes. <laughs> would you like to expand on that? <laughs> So uh, I, I talk about this at the at the end of my book, but basically free to play today is just a new evolution of shareware. Uh, it's it's the same idea, and what they've done though is they've mixed in gambling and coin op. So they've taken the idea of coin op arcade games where you got to just keep putting more money in to keep playing, and then you've got gambling with loot boxes. And you take those two things and you merge them with shareware and you've basically got the modern free-to-play market in all its many variations where you can do pay-to-win or you, you do it's free-to-play but you can buy some hats uh, to put on your character to you know, do some cosmetic customization or you can pay to get some extra levels, some extra content to make your game a bit more interesting. Uh, or you can like do monetized uh, ad watches or whatever. It's, it's all the same idea of we'll give you the game free and we'll figure out some way to make money from that. I think another really great example is like the Steam Fest stuff yeah. as well. That's like the classic, you get a level. Yeah. We both full game. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's, that's if anything, a little bit more aligned with, with the traditional format of just getting like a free little it's demo. spirit. Yeah, it's in the same kind of spirit, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think also uh, with Itch as well, you know, that's a really fantastic platform that a lot of people just kind of throw up little demos. And I think Webs is a really good example of that. They're here now. Yep. If everyone can look at them. No, you don't know what they look like, that's fine. That's a joke. Anyway, um, yeah, so Webs is a really good example because um, when Spug were making that, they had a little demo up on Itch. And the amount of traffic that that got, you know, it really just showed that core mechanic, which then obviously like really you know, was very tantalizing for everyone else for the full game. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and particularly the kind of pay what you want model that a lot of creators are using through which is really effective. Mm, definitely. Totally. Um, yeah, I, I agree with all that. I, I, I'm always, I'm looking at, because, you know, with with um, the free-to-play model, it's very hard because you've got not only something that wasn't a pervasive with, the original shareware model was that you know you'd have the rack packs and things, but you didn't spend ten million dollars advertising them, which is what the share a lot of the free free to play stuff does. You know, you may have free to play games, but these companies are just putting so much acquisition, to, yeah, acquisition costs that you can't. It's hard for a, an indie developer to be seen. That's that's the problem there. Um, I don't know what the answer is. Um, discoverability is really hard 
Um, I mean, it was I guess it was hard back when we were doing games, but we're kind of lucky that we'd be, you know, if we're shoved onto a cover disc with, with yeah. Wolfenstein or Doom, then they're going to grab that disc and we'd be there. By the way, uh, search engine optimization back in the days of shareware was you put a one at the front of your file name. <laughs> <laughs> so that you would appear at the top of the file list. And then when everyone was doing a one at the top of the file name, you put a special character at the, at the front of your file name. So you get these weird looking file names that have like two or three random characters at the front and then a short version of the actual file. And the whole thing has to be a maximum of eight characters because oh, that was the old oh, way yeah. on, on DOS. Yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah. Jerry, I think uh, something you were saying before is really interesting. Like I'm thinking back to when I was a kid and why shareware was so important, you know. I mean, I didn't have a lot of money to buy games either. And so the ability to be able to get those games for free um, really introduced me to a whole lot of titles. And also, like, you know, the re replayability factor. I mean, I would play that first level oh. of, of games again and again and again. I would know every single inch of it. So thinking back, I guess, from a bit of a player's perspective, what were some of the shareware games that were most important to each of you? What did you play the most? We'll talk about Doom a little bit later, but outside of Doom and Wolfenstein, what were some of the ones that reached out to you? So we're going to go down the line? Let's go uh, down the line. Yeah, you go first. All right. So uh, I, I grew up primarily as a Mac gamer, so uh, a lot of the stuff that I loved was on the Mac. Uh, I mentioned Glider before. It's a, You've got to get a paper airplane through a house. Uh, the final room is you've got to get past the cat so that you can get out the window. Uh, it's a cool sort of puzzle game. Uh, I played a lot of that. Um, Escape Velocity from Ambrosia Software was a big thing for me. Uh, uh, EV Nova was actually made down in Tasmania by a bunch of guys. Um, uh, geez, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm suddenly struggling. Uh, there's so many, there's so many games I played. Um, Elastomania, I oh played a lot gosh, of uh, uh, back when I was starting high school. Uh, that's that's a really fun game. Got this sort of uh, elastic motorbike thing. You've got to uh, figure it up. figure out how oh. to get through the the levels. And, and you know, people are still playing that today. But there's a World Cup of Elastomania. It's, it's crazy. It's really, really cool. These guys are so good at the game. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous the things yeah. that they can do. Uh, yeah, and so, uh, you know, if, if I think about it more, I could come up with lots of games. Um, but one other thing that might be uh, fun to mention is that in working on my book, I learned about a lot of games I didn't know about. Uh, and I think my favorite discovery in doing the Shareware Heroes book was a, a game on Atari ST called Grandad and the Quest for the Holy Vest. You play an old man in a motorized wheelchair as he looks for his vest, which he has misplaced. Oh, that's, so <laughs> that's, that's a must. It's a graphic adventure. Oh, that's that's to, you know, the, old, uh, the old monkey island. It's like stuff. Indiana Jones 8 or something, maybe. <laughs> and it's it. made by this guy who's now a, a plumber these days. Oh, <laughs> Because uh, he, he made a couple of games, they did well, but then he wasn't able to follow that up. So he, he went and got a vocation and, and started doing plumbing. Oh. Uh, and he said that basically this old man is him, but older. <laughs> That's classic. Yeah. John, what about yourself? Uh, well, I was I had the Amiga computer, so I think Shareware was, I don't remember being that big. It was mostly cover discs. and, um, and Public domain was huge. Yeah, we have, I'd have, the, I've still got it at home, the little, you know, flip the top up and just like, like a record store, flip all the, all the, um, acquired games you might have got from your friends so for, so it's horrible things like that but i was really um a platform as you can tell from halloween harry so like things like you know super frog or zool or um you know fire and ice and then anything with bitmap brothers like um chaos engine and those sort of games were, were my jam and stunt car racer was one i loved on the amiga it was 3d it was amazing yes very cool and then everything changed when monkey island came out um and then so retroactively went back and played their older games and everything else they've done since and that's what Jumped over then to doing um, Amazon Queen, but yeah, that was that was my so I was more more Amiga. I think um, I'm just thinking when we when we finally got like the PC boxes as we needed to make Harry and PC um, would have been all the classics like the stuff that everything that Apogee had yeah. playing those things. Jerry, you mentioned a couple. Any others jump out to you? Yeah, I think um, Raptor was probably yes. Raptor was like yes. I could play that now. Like, it's so good. Hey, oh, wow. oh really? I hope it's good. <laughs> you can't trust the remake. You know, we know we've learned that. 
Um, yeah, Raptor was easily all like all of the Hugos are just so incredible. Like Wolfenstein, was it Funny Carts? It was a Funny Cart. Scunny Carts. Yeah. Wacky, wacky, wacky Wheels. Wacky Wheels. Wacky Wheels. Yes. Yes. Stunts. Oh my God. Stunts was incredible. I'm not even sure that was shareware, but it definitely got on a floppy You're disk. You're my brain now. Yeah, so just about. like, yeah. you know, like a lot of those kind of really good DOS games. Actually, I think probably the biggest, most standout one would easily be Warcraft, the Warcraft demo, like mm. like Orcs versus Humans. Like that. Been playing it over and over again. That is just like, honestly, to, like just had such a massive impact on me. That was a massive game, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. But yeah, and Worms, like that we played a lot of Worms. Yeah. But I think there's something, yeah, the replayability is really interesting. So I think if there's anyone doing demos now, I think, you know, it's probably worth really thinking about that, you know, the replayability mm -hmm. of, a, of a small demo because, you know, you don't know who's going to be, if that's all they've got, you know. Definitely. I mean, like, yeah, jumping down the line a bit, obviously the sort of next iteration was those cover discs of all those magazines that we bought for years. Um, I mean, one that just jumps out to me was the first Tony Hawk's game. Like and oh, that first oh, that first level that PlayStation just, yeah exactly yeah. yeah like the first level that just ran for two minutes shit like we didn't even need to buy the rest of the game yeah. I think we just played that for, for an entire year yeah. again and again yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um look uh, can't end my questions without going on to talking a little bit about Doom in the ship here. yeah so um look I know we've all got our kind of own personal stories to do with Doom uh, Terry I might kick off with you though <laughs> yes what's your story. <laughs> Oh, I admitted I have a really embarrassing story and I, I'm going to tell it because I think it's, I just need to get it out. So, so I was with my cousin and my other really good friend. And uh, this is like, it's known as the doom story. And um, basically we had, I might've actually been doom too, but it doesn't matter. Let's for the sake of it, pretend it's doom one. Anyway, and so we're all playing doom and we were all huddled around the computer and we were just playing this, oh, like just so much of this game. And I remember there was like a moment, because you know, you can like shoot the barrels and the barrels explode. And there was a moment when my cousin shot one of the barrels and then like one of the, like the sprites of like one of the, you know, like the dead mushy bits of flesh or whatever, like went down some stairs and then the barrels kind of like chain exploded and then just ricocheted this body, thick more body down the stairs and I laughed so hard I wet my pants. <laughs> and yeah, I just, it was the funniest thing. And I'd never really, yeah, just like, it was such a dynamic game. Like it just had so much going on with it. And it was just like, it was just incredible. But yeah, that was, that's easily, easily my biggest dream. How, how old were you? Oh, um, like probably, yeah, I was probably, <laughs> not, yeah, probably too old to wet your pants, I think. Let's just say that. That's brilliant. John, what about yourself? Well, I had, I, I told Richard this one because um, we were, we were so proud of ourselves. We did Halloween and Harry. It was like parallax scrolling. We did some amazing technical things like, this is amazing. We, God, this is good. And we were actually charting really well in the charts. The Aperture were pushing it. And then uh, we went to Medicom's office and said, oh, I've got this new game from it. And we're like, oh, what is it? And then they we went to the, they had a preview version and they booted up Doom. And it was like, oh my God. And we just looked at, and like the blood running from my face as I realized, we, we, that's it. Enjoy the next week or so we have of being in the charts because we're just, that, we're history. And it was literally like looking into the future. It was like, yeah, the only other experience I had was, I guess, seeing, um, you want to saw the PlayStation? I was like, oh my God, this is the future. And, and the iPhone, it was like, yeah, seeing Doom was like, yeah, because we had these little, cute little sprites and little cartoon characters. And this was like fully immersive and the soundtrack was amazing. Oh, yeah. So yeah, that was when we realized that uh, we, we're way behind the curve now. You had a cutting edge game for two months. Yeah, we did. It was, it was <laughs> and cutting you edge. had something that was obsolete. I know. But the good thing is, yeah, Retro's back again. So yeah, I think it's still... Definitely. Still... I think the other thing that may really made it cut through was it was definitely one of those things you put on it. It really pissed off your parents. Like, it's just the same as listening to metal. Like, my parents hated Doom. Oh. Um, we're coming towards the end of the time for our panel, but we do have time for uh, just a couple of questions. So if you'd like to ask a question of any of our guests, please head on up to the mics. Mics? Oh, there. Oh, I thought they were coming on the stage. No, no, it's Mike. <laughs> Great, thanks. <laughs> oh, you're just both so polite. <laughs> oh, well. Um, I was going to ask... Speaking about different modern free-to-play stuff um, that you can liken to shareware, do you think that stuff like the free games with PlayStation Plus and games with gold and that would, would qualify as a certain way or is it like you're paying a subscription so it doesn't count as shareware? 
It's a good question. Like, I think the subscription model really is sort of taking off now and giving us access to to a huge range of games that we might not otherwise play. What do you think? Uh, well, it's sort of more like the more anal- analogous to the disc magazine era, where you, you're paying a subscription and you're getting software as part of that subscription. My, my, I just, I just, I, I mean, I don't, I have nothing on those services, but I don't, I don't know what the developer gets out of it. Am I worried that they might end up like music, where you know you'll have a few big games that get the lion's share of the revenue and you might have people with no choice but to be on those platforms and maybe they're just eking out a, a small existence. Whereas I think if you can, yeah. But you you have a comment? Yeah. I, the other fear I have too is that it changes the shape of the game because cause then if you get paid per units of time spent then you're encouraged to basically make a game that uses a lot of the free-to-play scammy well say scammy just the tricks like to psychologically get them back so if you want to make if you if you have a really amazing experience that takes four hours it's a beautiful crafted experience like there's no way you'll make money in those services because you're not people aren't engaging with it they play it once that's it and you, you get your whatever they might pay you 20, that's 20 true cents. and a lot of the a lot of, with subscription model is you know like a lot of the platforms need that retention yep. so you know, they're, they're generally favoring those kind of games, which, you know, make you play next month, next month, next month, next month. Which maybe it means an opportunity for then others to, you know, to physically, maybe maybe a way for people to, those experiences might live outside the subscription models. That's what I've come Yeah, from. I mean, it's a bit worrying to see if it actually goes down the route of something like, you know, a Spotify streaming service where, where the artists are pretty much almost making nothing out of the out of the amount of views. Like, um, you know, I was chatting with uh, with Jake Laney the other day uh, from, um, from Monster Mansion also makes video world and a bunch of amazing games you know and like one of his tracks has got 150,000 listens on spotify and he just got his big check for about i think it was 65 dollars yeah, yeah nothing uh, yeah uh um hello there we go um it's not exactly shareware but do you remember those um video games on the cereal boxes like age yeah. of empires and that is sort of a yeah s- similar spiritual thing do you think there's any kind of way to do something like that again because that just really i talk to anyone and they're like oh when did you play age of empires and like i got it on my box of special k it, it was yeah. and you got the disc didn't you yeah yeah you got, yeah, you got the disc yeah because yeah. I, I know nutella and things they have all these things where you 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 know they got these offers but they want you to like go to their web page and enter your details i guess they'd probably do it now through um download but yeah a physical thing would be great yeah. i don't know if they'll ever do it again. i'd love to be on like a game not me but like a yeah. game on the side of it <laughs> Side every box, yeah, yeah, because yeah. there's that Milo skating USB key game. inside of a cereal oh, box, yeah. though, and people might accidentally eat it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but there was a Milo skating game that was really good. I remember that oh, one, yeah, yeah that, that was, was insane. Sick. That was so good. <laughs> there's something, yeah, I know, there's something magic. I know because talking with a friend the, uh, last night, does um posters, and we're talking about the, the joy of having physical things, it's really nice because everything we got now is either on Steam or downloading on Xbox or or um yeah switch but yeah or iphone but having to own something is great and that's why your um, yeah. discs are really cool so yeah, that's it. I'd, I'd love to see that again apologies we've only got time for just two more questions but please do feel free to catch us outside and we're more than happy to have a bit more of a chat um this one's for richard um you mentioned finding a lot of new games as you were working on your book and learning what's you know, researching lots of new stuff what what was sort of like the deepest rabbit hole you fell down Ooh. Like where you found one thing and you like finding all sorts of other stuff as a result. Uh, I guess that would probably be uh, either uh, learning about uh, some of the the mid-tier shareware publishers like MVP software uh, on on the DOS and Windows side and just discovering that all they actually published a lot of games or this one, there's this one guy uh, who called himself Tommy's Toys. Uh, he's a strange character. But he put out about 200 little games made in BASIC over uh, 13 years. It's uh, phenomenal. And these games, they're all very weird uh, text, most, mostly text-only BASIC games. Uh, and they're, they're, some of them are, are things like uh, chess, but with 50 different piece types. Instead, or or uh, uh, some other uh, common game, but I've I've reinvented it. 
Uh, and other times it's something that's completely original uh, and they're all weird and none of them are polished. Uh, and his, his entire business model was just keep pumping out more stuff. <laughs> and then people will pay uh, to, to get the, a pack of, of five of these little toys of his. And he, he called himself uh, Tommy and Alien. Uh, he's, he's really reclusive. He didn't want to be known. So he pretended to be an alien in someone's basement making these games. It's uh, incredible. Odd character. Oh. <laughs> uh, so maybe that or, or uh, learning more about uh, Amiga and Atari ST shareware scenes, which they were never big, but uh, you know, I, I didn't have those systems. So it was really fun uh, just digging more and more into what was happening. And our last question. Oh, okay, cool. I've got another question for Richard, but I just want to say to John, um, I really love Flight of the Amazon Queen and oh. looking forward to the sequel. Oh, thank you. But Richard, uh, I was just wondering what kind of, uh, I guess, techniques do you have for finding some of these developers? Because like sometimes you've got like an address for a shareware game from like the late mm -hmm. 80s and they've probably since moved and, you know, like, do you have any, like, do you just search for a name on LinkedIn or is there like anything else that you do to try and find people? That's one of the tricks. Yeah. Uh, you try and find the person on LinkedIn, uh, which can be tricky. Uh, not everyone is proud of what they made 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Sometimes they want to forget it or they just don't think anyone would be interested. And so they don't mention it. Uh, another thing is, uh, as you're, um, Digging through old message boards, sometimes uh, there might be uh, some little tidbit that you can learn from that. Uh, that it's got an old email address, a really old email address, and from that you can find something. Uh, or they mentioned another uh, a day job that they had, and maybe uh, through searching for someone who did that day job or whatever the career is. Uh, Sometimes uh, it's a case of finding a person who uh, knew them and, and going through that. Uh, sometimes it is just as simple as taking their name and putting it into a search engine and then doing variations on uh, things that are relevant to their name uh, and trying to guess, or could this person be them? They, they seem like they're about the right age maybe. And just uh, sending an email randomly are you who I'm looking for? <laughs> and I legitimately did that uh, several times in doing Shareware Heroes. And uh, there were a few occasions in there where the person came back, oh my God, nobody remembers this thing I did. And they're really excited and they just awesome. blurt out so much information because they've never been able to tell their story. Oh, that's cool. And so it's wonderful when I, when I actually do stumble across the right person. Yeah. Right, thank you. Can I please get you to put your hands together for our guests, Richard, John, and Terry? A couple of final things. If you do love your classic and retro games, please head along to Acme, where you can check out a whole lot of things from our Play It Again 2 collection from the 1990s and the Australia 1980s of Australian games. You can catch up with Rich and grab a copy of Shareware Heroes, and don't forget to head on down to Paperhouse to grab your awesome collectibles yeah. and other gaming stuff. Because we will see you outside if you want to have a chat. You here on the weekend, so yeah, okay. yeah. I'll have links to where you can find each of us in the show notes, but just to add to that note about my book at the end, Shareware Heroes is out now in the UK and Europe and will be published on January 10th in the US and Canada in a paperback form. You can find out more or get links to Amazon and the like over at my DOS-themed website, sharewareheroes.com. Until next time, whenever that is. Hope you have a great break over the holidays. I'll see you.